Welcome to a podcast on fire on the dragon tamers and princess Shangping. And after unleashing a violent basher on us in the form of the young dragons, John Wu is assigned to Korea to make further sometimes naked kung fu in the form of the dragon tamers. Also, in, you know they say John Wu's films are, are like uh, bullet operas, like a ballet. Well, how about an actual opera? We're going to examine 1976's Princess Shangping. So it's the debut of uh, Cantonese uh, opera coverage here on the podcast on Fire Network. And uh, I definitely need help in that uh, department. I can talk Kung Fu on my own, sure. But I definitely need help in that department, the Cantonese opera department. So uh, with me is uh, Paul Fox of the East Screen, West Screen podcast, uh, helping me to fill in the gaps in the John Wu filmography. But uh, the Cantonese opera one, I have a feeling he... Uh, he already had a safe and secure in his collection. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. Always happy to be here to talk Hong Kong cinema. Is that a, like a, an annual watch? Are you that fond of Princess Xiangping? Or <laughs> I wouldn't say it's an annual watch, um, but it's one that uh, I really, really enjoy. I, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a bit of a opera nerd on the fringe when it comes to uh, Cantonese opera, though I pr- prefer probably the the martial operas a little bit more than the scholar operas that this one falls into. I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, a little bit later. But yeah, I, you know, uh, back in the day when I was in Hong Kong, I had to, I actually took a class on <laughs> Cantonese opera and uh, learned how to do a, a little bit of the background music. And our, our class had a small performance over at the Sunbeam Theater, which is the famous theater where they put on a lot of the... Uh, uh, opera performances, the professionals, that is. They let the students come in there every once in a while. Um, but I'm by no means an opera expert. It's just something that I've always found fascinating. And I know it's something that uh, doesn't appeal to everybody out there. So I always like um, saw it as, um, well, it's probably not a genre I can appreciate properly. But I have tried out... Um, a couple of the key movies, the reference works uh, that we we'll certainly mention, and now uh, this one. But I haven't uh, done a deep dive in the genre in terms of films or anything like that. Um, but uh, I, I certainly have appreciated what I've seen, and certainly dramatic films depicting the training and uh, uh, the dying art of the opera, like Painted Faces, that was certainly approachable from a dramatic standpoint. It didn't need to be this uh, scholar to understand what was happening in Painted Faces. So so it was all good. And uh, this uh, motivation uh, like, like extended and became greater when I wanted to uh, cover films in certain filmmakers' filmographies. And uh, so I plug gaps, as I always say. And I thought, um, why not? Uh, this is going to be uh, the, the motivation to do so. I remember... I, I, I didn't pursue it uh, until recently, but I remember watching one of the uh, Criterion laser discs of John's films, either The Killer or Hardboiled, which had a uh, trailer show of uh, other John Woo films on it. And I watched those when I was merely familiar with action films that and that kung fu films existed but had not watched kung fu films so to see a variety of different films was very nice and then the trailer for this came on for princess Xiang Ping. No, no not knowing that oh that's cantonese opera but it clearly was a musical and it was very fascinating that um, I, I got this little uh, insight into that he does more 
than just uh, action. He has uh, versatility in him. So that was rather nice. For that Criterion uh, scored that trailer and gave us a, a, a little bit of in-depth uh, view of uh, what he had done before. They probably put a comedy trailer on there as well because that was uh, looming in his future. But um, uh, nowadays it's, uh, it's nice to um, plug these um, gaps uh, for uh, the early stuff, including his opera. So... Uh, so let's uh, let's get going. Uh, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, go to our website, podcastonfire.com. All our other shows are on there. The archive of Podcast on Fire, director series, what's coming in cinema and so forth. Uh, contact us on social media. We're on Facebook. We have a Facebook group and page. Our Twitter is located uh, twitter.com at podcastonfire. And uh, follow us on Instagram as well for updates and uh, and what have you and uh, subscribe to us on uh, itunes and catch us on stitcher and spotify and wherever you get podcasts you were a little busy uh, at the end of the year so uh, me- meaning that your podcast went from uh, uh, a little bit dormant to very much active so why don't you plug uh, plug your show for the kids yeah it is called east screen west screen a show i do with my good friend and co-host kevin ma uncle kevin we get together when uh, we get together whenever we can to try and talk uh, Hong Kong cinema. Most recently, we talked about uh, some of the new Lunar New Year films uh, for 2023. Excellent. Uh, so follow those guys. Check out those episodes. It was very nice to hear you guys. Uh, and um, what was uh, like to, to you? You've always done that. You've given us a view of what is going on in Hong Kong, and this Lunar New Year season has been very special. And uh, so, so check out that. Uh, episode to find out uh, why and i don't think you uh, without spoiling it like the box office numbers for uh, a guilty conscience they weren't as great when you recorded but they grew post recording so it's a little first um, insight into how well it did and then just follow social media and see the staggering numbers i suppose uh, for for the latest dia wong but as i like to say it's the latest michael wong film as well that's very important to note. Uh, but uh, at any rate, we are going to check out the Dragon Tamers first of all. So we're going to play a little musical snippet from the film. And then we're going to talk uh, John Woo's Korean set uh, martial arts uh, piece uh, that he did after the Young Dragons that we've covered here on the show as well. So uh, sit tight and we'll be right back. And welcome back. And the first uh, movie of this uh, John Woo double bill is The Dragon Tamers from 1975. And the plot goes as follows. Carter Wong comes to Korea to learn Taekwondo. His uh, master becomes the character Pai, played by Lee Tae-yip. And Carter's uh, uh, character's goal uh, is uh, to square off against Hapkido Master Sheng, which is played by real life and revered Hapkido instructor uh, Ji Han-jae. 
you might have seen him in Game of Death in one of the, uh, during uh, one of the levels in the Pagoda sequence in Game of Death. Uh, he squares off uh, against him. Um, you know that's accomplished. Uh, he having made friends with the likes of Nan Kung, played by James Chen, in the opposite school, and falling in love with the uh, Hapkido master's daughter complicates matters. Uh, you know, fr- friendship and brotherhood becomes uh, all of a sudden very complicated. But uh, all of them have to unite as uh, rival schools, as uh, another. Uh, rival association are trying to become number one by murderous means so not a revolutionary kung fu plot uh, but uh, there it is uh, the korean set actioner and how this came about uh, golden harvest made a deal with a korean company and uh, now during his uh, contract days at uh, golden harvest uh, john was uh, paired up with local cast and crew uh, some from home and then uh, he shipped out to korea to merge with uh, both Korean talent, cast and crew, and also Japanese talent. Uh, so he was so, sort of a gun for hire, and uh, he shipped out to Korea to make Dragon Tamers and subsequently Hand of Death, which is uh, the uh, martial arts film he did with uh, Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung and his uh, buck teeth and uh, all of that. And one day we'll certainly cover that. Dragon Tamers, with its mix of Taekwondo and uh, and uh, other styles of Kung Fu, was reportedly based on a Japanese TV series that itself was adapting Akira Kurosawa's 1943 judo film Sanshiro Sugata, which was uh, actually his first film, if my research is correct, uh, Akira Kurosawa's 1943 film uh, Sanshiro Sugata. It's, a, it's actually been remade in Japan five times between 1955 and 1977, but only one of the films took cues from Kurosawa's film, while the rest used the novel as inspiration. And uh, Sanshiro Sugata actually spawned two TV series as well in 1970, and uh, one ran between 1978 and 1979, so if one were to make a sort of logical conclusion is that it's the TV series in 1970, that was the basis for what is happening here in Dragon Tamers. But again, I haven't seen uh, neither the film or the TV series. But uh, this is uh, what I, what I found in um, in the research. I mean, are, are you that uh, big of a Akira Kurosawa nut that you have gone back as far as 1943? No, I have not, unfortunately. <laughs> hopefully, uh, they they talk about it in detail. So hopefully, it's all it's uh, an available film, uh, considering it's that. Um, it's that old, but it, it, that, that's the sort of uh, inspiration for Dragon Tamers, whether it uh, uses uh, huge cues from his film or not, or they're just making, they have that as a framework and then they go on to make uh, what they're good at by the time we uh, reach the 70s, which is uh, martial arts uh, choreography. It's uh, in its uh, evolving stages. So, but uh, Let's get into the film then, so I'll, I'll do my quick opinion first here. Um, I, I wanted to track back a little bit to Young Dragons first, uh, because I, I do remember uh, the echoes of ideas in John Woo from working as an assistant to legendary director Chang Che, like, you know, themes of honor, loyalty, brotherhood. That turned up in what was a fairly standard basher, Young Dragons that is, uh, but... Very, very watchable. It suffered at the hand of censors at the time, if you remember, Paul. But we obviously watched this uh, uncut version. But but it all felt like a young, new director communicating uh, as maturely as possible. So it was decent for the genre. And uh, Brotherhood, Loyalty, and the Bloody Brotherhood. It was a decent subtext, all of that. 
and all of that. Uh, the Dragon Tamers goes for some of the same maturity and voice, but I think it's a little bit more spotty. The harsh Korean landscape is refreshing. I always like when we see Korea on film. And uh, after a clunky start with slow motion nudity, I think uh, Wu's script comes a little bit more to life. And there's some excellent gritty training fight sessions and bloody fights even. And uh, there, there's really some cool furious pace to the arm and leg combat that's highly memorable uh, but that that sort of mid film i thought uh, some of the fighting towards the end of the film was less memorable but um, there, there, there is a john woo work in here even if it's slow motion with nudity included but um, it's uh, it's his only way of um, to being refined theme wise and style wise and there's nothing wrong with trying while executing your inside your assignment in korea which this is this isn't this isn't his pet project or anything his life's uh, like the dream work he always wanted to make so it's one of those evolving films and certainly watchable in spots but also spotty so that's my short opinion for now what did you think of the dragon tamers yeah i think it's uh very entertaining especially for sort of the sophomore feature from uh, director Wu. um a little bit uneven in places with uh plot that's i would say fairly typical for the era it, it's not kind of reinventing much until like the final 10 minutes where i think it throws in something that you don't often see that i found very refreshing and i think if you can get to that point um, and you're used to seeing sort of the standard hero villain end fight from a lot of shaw cinema uh, of the, this era that you'll you'll look at that with um and and feel that it's a little bit of a fresh take that, that i would agree with but i didn't think the end fight was that strong in general though i, I think they had peaked um earlier but uh we we, we perhaps get some um we'll, we'll spread some details uh, around as we go actually jackie chan co-action directed the first film but he's not on this one uh, the 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 other action director from the young dragons i'm referring to uh, Chan Chun, he's uh, he's here uh, as part of the um, action choreography. Um, he's uh, assigned those duties, um, so we're gonna get some karate in uh, taekwondo and other styles, of course. And uh, he opens in a quite a um, noticeable way. Like, uh, how, how do you uh, make uh, people stay for your film? Well, open with uh, sellable elements, I suppose. So. Uh, we uh, see uh, the crew of Japanese actresses, this uh, fighting gang, you know, karate versus taekwondo, school versus school, uh, kicking the crap out of each other during the opening, slapping each other, and uh, rolling around in mud with their perky breasts, peeking out in slow motion. So yes, there's no artistic statement here, but it's a way to make the folks stay so i'm gonna ask you a very serious question paul what development of john woo's voice do we see here looking at the slow-mo nude fights answering a very very scholarly way right now <laughs> well i think if you juxtapose his later films ideas of using doves as you know birds of peace and how they fly slow motion across the screen you can get that same kind of element here um, in the naked bodies of the young girls as they slowly roll through. <laughs> nah, it's just nudity for the sake of nudity. So, so yeah, so yeah, hide the kids. I guess uh, is the is the, is the question uh, is is the answer here. If you want to watch uh, Dragon Tamers, uh, don't uh, don't uh, do it in the living room where everyone can see. Um, you'll find that out a couple of minutes in. 
Okay, to jump back to a point you made, you've got uh, Chen here as the the sort of uh, fight director, and uh, he's worked on you know lots so uh, so many films that people have probably seen and may not have known that he's worked on them as the director. I mean, but it, this is uh, you know like when Taekwondo Strikes, another one of these sort of uh, Hapkido Taekwondo style hard hitting. Uh, films that kind of breaks from the Shaw Brothers kung fu traditions of the era, um, stuff like Stoner. These films were kind of going through a d- slightly different direction, although there is Chinese kung fu here when we get introduced with the Carter Huang character and how he kind of uh, wants to learn and blend styles. But uh, even in the beginning, in in sort of these uh, early fights with the girls, there's some hardness to, to what they're doing. It it descends away from that into some cat fighting and some slap fighting and some biting and some rolling on the ground. Like like but, this, um, uh, like this undercranking elsewhere in the scene that is like comically yes, uh, poorly yeah. made. Uh, uh, like when they fight in the weeds, uh, the tall weeds, and uh, go slappy slappy and punchy punchy. Didn't look as good though. No, I would agree. But I mean, there there is a there is an attempt to sort of uh, follow along with what the genre of this kind of film as a as a action film was trying to establish in this era yeah for sure i mean it's not easy to avoid comparisons to the trailblazers when you're doing similar sequences subsequently i mean for one uh, the, the movie does stand out because it's set in korea it's death of winter so it's harsh, it's colder, and, and I like it. I like that as a different visual for a kung fu film. But then there are sequences like the big bad coming to destroy your school, and it's not easy to like stop thinking of a uh, the Chinese boxer, or, or even Hapkido, or when Taekwondo strikes. I'm sure there's similar beats in those that I don't remember right now. But uh, if you cast a good face for it, you know the big baddie to. Uh, come destroy your school and maybe your uh, your signage i don't I, uh, I don't remember him doing it uh, in this one then it's okay then cliches are okay when a when a cool face is doing it uh, i believe the actor is called young Wai, who is the, one of the big bads in this film kicking people through walls and throwing them around but but again it it felt like almost one xerox copy of what went on in chinese boxer even king boxer they are doing stuff they've seen and not reinventing the wheel but uh, as it is fairly hard and uh, quite gritty it it passes mustard definitely even if i've seen these things before you know but i don't know if you like recognize like oh yeah like the ding 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 chinese boxer ding 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 hapkido or you didn't spot uh, the sim- similarities and such. oh no absolutely i mean it's it's fist of fury right or okay, of know, course yeah chinese connection whichever title you want to to put it under but it's it's yeah it's i mean it's it's all there it's the breaking of this of the sign and our school is better than your school and that whole kind of plotting which i think it if you take that just uh, as an aside from the action, the plot's not all that interesting. I mean, you you have these villains basically going around uh, beating up schools, and you don't see anything else. I mean, you 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 don't really see towns, you don't see people. You've got these schools and their students, and they're they're I guess in very isolated areas. Even though I guess the girls are 
I guess they're universe. Are they? They're university students. Like, like, like the surroundings look like schools I've seen in Korean films. You know what I mean? Like, like the architecture look very familiar in that regard. Um, it, it certainly evoked that feeling. Yeah, but it seems it seems very remote. It doesn't seem like you know there there's no police running down the street. People are dying. There's no you know investigations of anything. It is is it, it's a very sort of uh, lawless hinterland in some ways and so you have these bullies coming around and basically saying join our association or die and and beyond that there's there's these two other plots that are kind of running concurrently with this the plot of carter wong who comes in and, and he wants to basically learn this fighting style from this master and and sort of his journey and then you've got james teen and his he's a teacher of these girls and they're getting bullied by other girls, and then these paths all kind of converge at one point. Yeah, not smoothly so. I'd say I, I'd even forgotten about, for lack of a better word, like, like, the, uh, like the plot about the girls. It seems like it's uh, cast aside a little bit that they're yeah. reintroduced. Which is interesting because it, it, the English title doesn't really convey this, but sort of the Chinese title... You know, it's it's kind of like loosely translated as girl student or girl taekwondo, you know, hero association. It, it seems to kind of put emphasis on, on the girls. And I think that that point is um, kind of lost um, as you get sort of into the middle act and you're more in into um, Carter Huang's journey and, and what James Teen is doing. Some uh, specific highlights in this uh, this this first third, I guess. Uh, not all fights are about uh, they're they're not about lethal outcomes or anything. So they're they're just they're just friendly about the rough sparring between like uh, Ji Han Jae and uh, James Chen, uh, acting like a teaching moment in front of the, uh, of the girls, uh, which looks uh, very cool, and I do like that. Uh, respectful uh, uh, demonstration of uh, of uh, martial arts and hapkido uh, uh, i guess which is going to come back in a compelling way as well you may, you, you mentioned that it's a very isolated uh, setting i don't, don't know if you noticed that but it's so cold in the school you can see the actresses like like the breath of the actresses uh, when they're sitting in their uh, in the in, in in the main hall in the gymnasium of the school or whatever so uh, there's uh, no way to fake that. Uh, but then again, a few minutes later, there's uh, girl time in the shower and baths. More nudity. So <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm sure John was a, a good worker. And if someone said, like, you, you got to do this. But it's certainly not on brand for him to shoot uh, casual nudity as such. You know, the, I'm not complaining, but it's, it's one of those. It, it looks like a like a producing directing entity not working in tandem but working at the same time to create a uh, compelling whole if you will because he's a he's credited here as one of the screenwriters i mean you got to wonder did is this coming from his side or is is his this coming from the the other side so yeah for sure i mean it, it's uh, it's it's not a sex film though but it's it's, uh, it's almost casual nudity towards the end even during the action there's a uh, casual nudity uh, and, and and there's like little romantic subplots that 
they kind of clunky and forced. Uh, he's very young, so therefore he's not executing that at any top ability or anything. Uh, the character of Ming Mei, uh, her love and interest is uh, James Chen. I think there's a romantic triangle happens later. So, you know, it's a director working out how romance works in films on a basic level, but it, it's nothing uh, really uh, memorable. And then I think there's some slow motion running in tall grass or romping or whatever between the lovers and it also looks clunky but you know he's he's young he's working stuff out uh, whether or not he wrote that specifically it is what it is you know he uh, he tries to create this uh, full picture to care for you know to, to care for that the violence is exciting and uh, to care for that uh, ooh, there's uh, nudity and sexy time in this and there's also romance and uh, a beating heart in the film so he's trying to sort of inject compelling mainstream elements i suppose uh, which you know clunky is okay but it's not uh, uh, you know as, a, as an evolving artist but it doesn't make the uh, the movie better or anything uh, uh, the, the movie actually gets better once we're introduced to the character of uh, pai mu which is uh, one of the uh, uh, korean actors i believe and uh, his uh, name is, uh, I believe, Lee. Uh, well, it's Lee Taip, which sounds like the Chinese version of his name. It's uh, Lee Da Ye, or something akin to that in Korea, in Korean. And his uh, character Pai Mu, who I believe they like the evil association with uh, with the capes and all of that. They try to uh, convince him to join them, and he's his own man. And he's one of the reasons why the action direction comes off as uh, hard and fast and impressive. Because the fight that uh, takes place involving him uh, in uh, one of the other schools has some of the best and quickest exchanges, hand-to-hand exchanges, kicks. And it's really impressive and thrilling as this character comes to life on screen. they they got a genuine talent in... Uh, in this uh, uh, in this uh, Korean cast uh, member, so, uh, so it, it's like a game changer, I think, for the film's action impact, which which goes from yeah yeah it's fine the slow mo nude fight and uh, some sparring and all of that, but when that happens, I think the movie uh, it, it adds to its uh, basic decent rating, I suppose. Uh, so I, that's why I say that I think the better fighting stuff occurs earlier in the film and not at the end of the film. Sadly, I think they they peak a little bit too early. Uh, but I don't know what you thought of that. It was, if it was like a good progression of uh, quality fight action throughout that then culminated in a good finale. No, I do think that you get sort of the 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 bigger, more intense fights um, in sort of in the second act. But one of the things I think that they do here, from a narrative standpoint, which I find very interesting, because they kind of play against the tropes is that, as you mentioned, there is this kind of romance. It starts off with basically four characters, James Teen, Carter Huang, and the the two actresses. Um, I believe one of them is a Korean actress. So Carter Huang comes in, and, and he crushes on this uh, girl student that uh, James Teen is also crushing on. And you have this other girl who likes James Teen, and then she's angry at the first girl because, you know, she's jealous. And you think this would kind of play out in a in a normal sort of triangle jealousy cycle where characters get angry and and they become enemies as a result. But actually, they go in a different direction with it. And it's a direction that's not often taken. And I found that to be 
a bit refreshing. And it builds into the idea between these characters of James Tien and Carter Huang of kind of an early look at the, the sort of brotherhood ideology that would become a staple of later John Woo films. And this is something we talked about um, when we talked about Young Dragons as well, the, the, the idea of th that you have these characters who are supposed to be sort of in opposition to each other for reasons, but th their kind of brotherhood, their honor, um, their, their friendship towards each other takes precedence over that, um, and they end up becoming allies uh, as, as a result. And so I do think that that is very much a... Uh, an aspect of John Woo showing through here uh, in the script and in his direction. And I did find that, you know, refreshing because a normal film would take that and, and just sort of grind those tropes of these characters, not liking each other and things not working out in certain ways to position them as, as kind of opposing forces. And I also very much like the, uh, the, when the focus is on the challenge that Carter Wong, uh, wants to engage in with Mr. Cheng, uh, again, the Korean real-life uh, Apkido instructor, Ji Han Jae. One of the better sort of stretches in the film because uh, it Carter isn't there to uh, issue like a... Like, like he doesn't want to murder Mr. Cheng to become the best or anything. They, they, it's done under respectful conditions. He goes there with uh, the Pai Mu character for a chat. And he's supposed to be humble and courteous. So it's not about him uh, aiding in taking down an association that he feels is evil. No, the challenge in this case, the, like the lesson to be taught at the end of it, whether he wins or not, is to receive um, instruction. He He's to be taught something. And yes, it's a hard fight, but it's a teaching moment. And it really looks good on film that it's not about uh, blood first between these different uh, parties or anything. Yeah. And and even Carter is a bit uh, conflicted uh, at the end because he, he does win and it seems like he puts uh, out uh, the old man, which Jihan Jay is uh, made up to be a little bit older. He's not old per se, but he, uh, he doesn't take it well. He feels bad for going as hard as he did, and he needs to be sort of slapped around and said, "You, you didn't kill him, you didn't do anything wrong, and this was a profound lesson. You were after this. You, you didn't violate any terms of this challenge, challenge, so to say." And I thought that was uh, again where the movie really peaked well, and I certainly did not think about any evil association. Uh, rivalry or the naked girls or anything like that. It, it was kind of nice and mature, and not too uh, too on the nose and or too clunky or, or uh, melodramatic or anything. Uh, so those were like the really good uh, plus points to come out of uh, Dragon Tamers, and it felt like the genre was uh, not being recycled as such a uh, sequence happened. You know. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too because there's there's a bit of a binary opposition going on <laughs> in this film that may not even realize it because there's a scene where Carter is training with his master prior to this big fight and his master's, you know, really trying to emphasize, you know, you're doing this as a method of self-improvement. You're not doing this to go out and kill people and you need to learn to control and yourself and your emotions in the fight. And then they immediately cut to 
a girl fight with the Taekwondo girls team where they're just going crazy. And it's like completely the opposite. I mean, they're, they're, they're like, you know, slapping each other. They're, they're yelling, they're screaming. And it's like, you know, on the one side, it's like control your emotions. And the other side, it's like, ah, girl fight, girl fight. And it adds to some of the weirdness of, of the pacing and the message. But I was reminded too, especially after that scene, which is, it's a really great scene where Carter Wong is so upset at himself and then his teacher's coming out and saying, you know, like you said, no, you you have to understand that this is a this is a teachable moment, you, you know, that you did nothing wrong. And I was reminded of uh, like things like Johnny Toe's Throwdown, where they're really trying to, you know, not make it about school versus school or I'm the, the bet. I'm, I'm the king of the world. I'm 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 the best in the world kind of thing that a lot of these martial arts films tended to vibe on for their narrative, like where you get this you know, really big, bad. And it's always about him going around killing masters until he kills the wrong master. And then the student steps up and has to go kill him. And instead, it's more about the the the, the learning and and the education, the experience, the camaraderie. Um, and I'm reminded of films like, um, you know, also like uh, uh, Heroes from the East, you know, which is, again, about that. It's about the art of it rather than about sort of the domination that we've come to expect. That makes the more uninteresting, sort of spotty, clunky additional threads when they are reintroduced. They certainly just seem way more lacking than the maturity we've uh, established. Uh, I mean, there are goofy sights and sounds, I suppose, uh, because uh, the evil association, they all wear capes. You know, so you, you, he establishes a visual, and they have discussions. Uh, you know, but the evil ones have a discussion. They're all dressed in black, and they're in a windy field with tall grass. So he's trying to like establish some atmospheric visuals on a meager budget, but it more comes off as uh, a bit goofy, and it's all on done on a meager budget. You know, he can't make uh, magic out of these uh, harsh conditions. But uh, I, I sort of bumped on the fact that yeah, he's. He's trying to do something here to make it stand out. Uh, I noticed because I've seen the damn movie so much, uh, some of the music that they drop is from... Um, it, it takes place in the latter half of the film, like during the training scene between uh, Carter Wong's character and the character of Ming Mei. There's some needle drops from the Duck Yusucker soundtrack, aka A Fistful of Dynamite, uh, the Ennio Morricone soundtrack. It's hard to separate those which Ennio Morricone which Sergio Leone film is it from but I'm so damn familiar with the Dakusaka soundtrack it's my favorite Sergio Leone film anyway so they use uh, some needle drops from that soundtrack a couple of scenes in a row so they certainly had that at hand and as I always say you put Ennio Morricone on just about anything you're immediately somewhat of a better film it just works that way for some reason his music is uh is it like it can jump from one genre to another and just add good atmosphere it's good music so you know it helps he doesn't use any doves here but he uses pigeons so we're on our way you know one scene there, there are pigeons <laughs> about so okay ding 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 where he's uh he's establishing uh he's, like uh, these uh holy uh, uh holy creatures these white little uh, creatures of uh, purity well i'm gonna get to that but for now Pigeons. Pigeons will do. But uh, but yeah, as it winds up, uh, it really never turns into that greatly interesting and sometimes even somewhat incoherent as the threads 
collide as they, they try to turn Carter against James uh, Chen and uh, but in the end they uh, get together against the big bad and uh, there, there are some like slow motion for some finishing moves uh, during the end fight but I just thought I'd never really got into the technical quality of the end fight um, it's again possibly because I didn't really get into the basic story of these uh, merged threads as we get to the finale uh, so it really wasn't that interesting and I know there's a good little unexpected beat with 10 minutes to go or 7 minutes to go that is certainly not usual but I, w- I wasn't that interested despite to be honest um, so peaking early they're doing great sequences earlier but peaking early turns out to be a little bit of a problem for uh, for the Dragon Tamers, despite the Basher style is you know being quite fetching and gritty. But there, there, there's nothing to like. Um, there's no great momentum when it comes to that style here. It's more again spotty is the word for this as well. It's certainly not uh, this uh, film where there's nothing here that. Uh, signifies like oh John Woo is uh, growing there certainly is a lot of things here that shows he's growing but it isn't uh, him forming a full picture of themes combined with action and technical quality just yet and I think the young dragons might even appear a little bit stronger in this regard to be quite honest Uh, maybe because it was uh, so much more violent I'm a little bit of a sucker for that but but I do recognize uh, as you said that they do uh, plant a little surprise for us towards the end, and that's not uh, uh, that's not a bad thing. And the finale, by the way, it, the barren setting. As much as I love the Korean landscape and the harsh Korean landscapes in the kung fu film, the barren setting doesn't make it that cinematic towards the end. Uh, it doesn't become gritty and fetching because of the barren and harsh setting. So um, I think they were struggling to make this cinematic uh, based on what they had. And where they could go and the budget they had but um, not a bad thing overall so i guess i'll uh, end my notes there other than uh, the slow-mo death towards the end or the or the scene post defeat of the final opponent that does have some exploitation ca- casual exploitation elements as well think back to our discussion of how, how the film begins they do uh, tie a knot on that by doing it at the end as well a little bit <laughs> so yeah um, so I'll, uh, I'll leave it to you to uh, uh, share any other notes uh, you have uh, in terms of the end fight or other elements of the film. No, I think I pretty much touched on um, all the points that stood out. Uh, I, I do think that this is a step up from uh, the Young Dragons a little bit in terms of uh, just some of the technical merits. And even though the storytelling is a, perhaps a bit uneven in comparison at times, um, I think that this one is, uh, for me, a... Uh, has has a bit more re- rewatch value and is something that I can go back and visit from time to time uh, a bit more easily. And again, the setting, the cinematography, a lot of that also, as Ken mentioned, works to its benefit. And uh, yeah, in, in the timeline there, uh, because uh, I think we're going to continue pl- plugging up some gaps, you, you're going to get to um, the Hand of Death and obviously Princess Xiangping for this episode and some comedies and then in the midst of the comedic run he does lost for hurrah for chivalry which i really think uh, starts to form a picture of what he's able to do where, where you can sort of say oh yeah 
this is pre-heroic bloodshed in wuxia film form and it's pretty well done as a matter of fact you know so uh lost her of chivalry is going to be a good thing to um to cover eventually once we reach 1979 but dragon tamers 1975 the film uh, in the second half of this episode is 1976 and um then we're um, then he's off and running with um, you know changing identities into a comedy director and then into the John Woo that most most of you know. Uh, but uh, at any rate, as for availability of the Dragon Tamers, uh, there is a French double pack DVD with this film and the Young Dragons that I found reasonably priced on eBay and Amazon France in 2021. I wanted that, um, uh, but but there is no English subtitles. But I had access to custom subtitled versions of the young dragons and the dragon tamers so i did the right thing by buying a physical copy as well so uh, and, and it wasn't too expensive the dragon tamers was released on vcd by joy sales in hong kong not on one of those silver box dvds uh, but also in america in the uh, on a dvd in a box set that also contain manchu boxer the skyhawk and the association from uh, from the Golden Harvest uh, archives, and I checked secondhand prices, and they were very good for that uh, box set. So I suppose that should be the recommendation. Um, I, I can't say that because the Dragon Tamers version we watched, even though it's DVD, it might not look it, but it is actually remastered. And uh, I don't know what the state of the print is in the American box set, though. But I'm sure it will be okay, even if it's an older print in a little bit more rough shape. So do check it out, and uh, you get some uh, further films uh, in that uh, set. I'm not sure I've seen the Manchu Boxer, I've seen the Association at one point, but the Skyhawk is interesting because it's Quan Ta King's return to the Wang Fei Hong role, and beside him he has Sam Hong. So it's an interesting uh, and an entertaining watch from the director of King Boxer. So uh, uh, we have a review of that in the podcast archive as well. So do uh, do check it out. Uh, we are going to take a music break, play a little bit of Cantonese opera for you from Princess Shang Ping, from the from the director of Face Off and Hard Boiled and Hard Target comes a Cantonese opera, and we're going to take a look at Princess Shang Ping from writer director. John Woo, made in Welcome back, and the second John Woo film of this episode is the Cantonese opera film, Princess Shangping. We've never done uh, such a thing here on the show, so this is uh, the very first. And we're going to actually skip ahead a little bit because like, I'm not going to do the plot as such because the following background notes and information will, will sort of fill you in on the plot of this Cantonese opera film, and, and we will certainly discuss perhaps some deviations, and I'm not sure it's entirely spoiler free this but um so you know t- take that as a warning if you like but we're gonna get into the background instead and uh, we're here in 1976 dragon tamers was uh, released in 1975 and john woo was writing and directing this uh, cantonese opera for golden harvest and it is an adaptation princess Xiangping, of uh, the fictional 
folktale The Flower Princess, whose main character is a real-life Ming Dynasty person, woman, Princess Xiangping. And, and I do, if I do get anything wrong here, Paul, because I know you're a little bit more knowledgeable about these things, do interrupt me. But uh, uh, if we first focus on Flower Princess, it existed as what is uh, called a Kung Ku or Kung Chu opera, which is an older version of Chinese opera. And it was then adapted in 1957 by playwright Tang Ti Sheng as a Cantonese opera and made its uh, debut that year on stage, 1957. And it had a little bit of a constant factor. We have two leading actresses, uh, Yang Kim Fai and Pak Shut Sin, because they reprised their roles continually for four years and then went back on stage sporadically doing the same thing between 1962 and 1970. And two years after the opening of Princess Xiangping on stage, there was a film. They starred, those two actresses, Yam King Fai and Pak Shut Sin, starred in a film version of this opera called Tragedy of the Emperor's Daughter. So it wasn't called Princess Xiangping. And um, an album of the full stage performance, which uh, apparently can last up to four hours. I hope they get an intermission at some point <laughs> during, these, uh, during these things. Uh, but that, that stage uh, performance uh, on, um, on, uh, on vinyl, I suppose, uh, was released in 1960. And then John Woo's film came out in... Uh, 1976 uh, so just a spontaneous question because i know you looked up the fact that tragedy of emperor's daughter the film that the cantonese opera actresses from stage starred in that that's available on youtube your limited cantonese my 1000 percent limited cantonese was that at all approachable to watch without subtitles or you just scanned through that to sort of see what uh, kind of technical qualities they could provide in 1959 no, I have watched it. Um, Cantonese opera itself is is difficult for Westerners to approach, even Westerners who have some, like myself, who have some limited Cantonese ability. There are the singing moments, and then there are the acting moments. And the acting moments are easy enough for me to follow. But when they start singing, then I'm just completely lost because the tone and the tempo um, that they're singing, even though there will be Chinese subtitles up there, to show the words and the, the lyrics that they're singing, um, it's very difficult for me um, to follow because it's... And those songs are like a narrative. They are not these symbolic yeah. songs. They are proper narrative, these songs. So, so if you're lost in that regard... Yes, then... and yes, yes and no. There's a, With Chinese, there's always a deeper underlying meaning very often to words that are being used, especially when they're compounded together that's very difficult to learn that there are people who spend lifetimes, you know, um, it's, it's like Chinese poetry, you know, learning the, the context of that stuff. But imagine if you will, for a, a non native English speaker coming in and, and trying to learn English and then watch Shakespeare and Shakespeare being a musical at times, you know, it would be, it, it's, it's just varying levels of complexity beyond learning the the language of the day, um, which is you know very often what's taught in in books and in, in classrooms. So um, it's 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 very it can be very very challenging, um, even for native speakers, let alone um, somebody learning the language from the outside. And uh, I, I just saw a few snippets of it. Uh, the film Tragedy of the Emperor's Daughter certainly didn't look that the mo- uh, like the most bare production or anything it certainly looked elegant uh, so they, they could sort of uh, bring out the costumes and uh, do some decent sets for um, 
uh, for stage play, if you will. I'm not sure if it was colorized or or, or readapted at all from time, the time when they shot it, um, but it's a very vibrant production. Um, it's still very stagey, uh, as it were, because they are trying to use film techniques, but they're not trying to break away from the stage techniques quite as much as I think John Woo's version does. It can look a little bit flat at times, but then again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just if you, you know, if you're expecting it when you go in, I think you'll have a much better appreciation. If you're kind of going in cold, it can be kind of hard uh, to, to get into that. But again, it's like, I mean, you know, think of something like going in and watching Johnny Toe's movie. Was it The Office? Um, that he did and where it's just like a complete uh, staged play basically that he filmed on this very elaborate set um, with very sort of minimal set pieces and whatnot. You know, there, there's, there's, there's definitely an audience for that kind of thing, but you know, a lot of people don't want to go see a stage play as a film. So it's not going to appeal to everybody. For sure. And so that was the um, film adaptation in 1960, and John Woo's film came out in 1976 under the English title Princess Chiang Ping, starring um, Cantonese opera performers and actresses. Um, uh, we have two leading ladies here. One of them plays a male character. Uh, Long Kim Sang uh, plays the husband Zhao Xi Chan, and Moi say plays uh, Princess Chiang Ping. I don't have any info on its performance box office-wise, but it certainly has been re- uh, represented on DVD, remastered DVD, Blu-ray, even Laserdisc back in the day. Uh, by all accounts, not a subtitled version, uh, perhaps not even letterboxed, because uh, John did film this in uh, in full-width widescreen, uh, so he opened up uh, the stage uh, uh, that way. So, and, and the scope of the film, uh, as we'll probably talk of, it's not just set in two rooms or anything. He tries to open up the world a little bit, for, for better or worse. Uh, going forward a little bit, the 2007 anniversary taping of the stage uh, uh, of the stage play was performed by the Cho Fengming uh, troupe. Uh, it was captured for DVD and CD release. And although it didn't share the Chinese title, apparently ATV adapted the play for a television drama in 1981, and it was changed into more of a wuxia setting and story in the process it starred uh, Damien Lau uh, Michelle Yim and uh, David Chang uh, and there was also a 2003 TVB series based loosely on the play called Parish in the Name of Love. Sounds to me Paul like they knew the story could be adapted sans singing uh, because I, I, I can't imagine if a television drama was a full opera Series. Yeah, no, not not for TVB. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going there. Uh, but there, 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 there's certainly drama to squeeze out of this, um, you know, this uh, narrative. So, um, so why not uh, adapt it in uh, different ways and uh, maybe deviating from the text um, as well? Uh, but going back to Princess Xiangping from a historical point of view, from a historical point of view, and uh, I'm sure we'll be given some example of examples of how the fictionalized version of her. Princess Xiangping has uh, trickled into further culture and entertainment. We will certainly do that. But the, 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 this was a historical character. Xiangping, she was born to the Chongqian Emperor and Empress Xiao. She, uh, she had two sisters and six brothers. And uh, we then cut to the age of 16, where her father arranges uh, for her marriage to military officer Xiao Qian. This uh, arranged marriage was halted since a rebel army led by uh, Li Si Cheng 
entered the royal palace. This led to the capital falling, to the rebel uprising, and the emperor making the decision to kill his family uh, for for fear of his children's fates uh, uh, being the same as happened with the fall of the Song dynasty. Uh, so this led to Xiangping's uh, brothers, the princes, being tortured to death. Uh, the princesses were forced into prostitution. So it sounded to me like he, he wanted to kill his entire family, but it sounded that like uh, these uh, family members were for- forced into a worse fate than um, uh, after all. You know, before uh, maybe they were caught before the father could uh, could execute them all. Uh, Princess Xiangping in a way found her mother dead at the temple and uh, her father arrives and cuts her arm off. Uh, but she's saved by a eunuch uh, as, the, as the story goes, as the history goes. And she uh, survives the massive blood loss apparently after being unconscious for five days and then she catches up with the events. And uh, that included her father taking the life by hanging himself in the front of the Forbidden City. And then we cut to 1645 at the time when the Ming Dynasty had re- been replaced by... Uh, by the Qing dynasty and uh, then Princess Changping asks for permission by the emperor to become a Buddhist nun and when she's denied that uh, the, the initial marriage to Zhao Qian is followed through on and Princess Changping eventually dies during her um, subsequent pregnancy due to illness so this is a summary of mighty high drama that perhaps doesn't need more fictional elements but uh, we go back to the flower princess that was a fictionalized account of the life of Princess Changping. And uh, therefore her tale gets extended. So instead of dying, uh, she becomes a nun after the fall of the dynasty and then she starts training in martial arts and becomes the leader of the rebel movement against the Qing dynasty. Therefore, in the research, I stumble upon stuff that is in Paul's wheelhouse that he probably already knew of. Uh, but uh, she is apparently featured, Princess Changping, as a character in Jin Yong's Wuxia novel Sword Stained with Royal Blood, where she has a different name, and then she has a romance with the protagonist of that work, and she eventually does lose an arm, but under what circumstances I have no idea of, uh, and she becomes a nun and changes her name and so, stuff like that. So did you know any of that, uh, like sort of loosely, that Princess Changping has been featured in his stories, uh, or that story, Sword Stained with Royal Blood? Yeah, only from reading uh, trivia over the years, I have not read... Uh an adaptation of sword stain with royal blood i think she also is rumored to have a role in the duke of mount deer or deer in the cauldron which um you know is uh, the the royal scholar films from um you know uh, stephen chow fame a royal tram films sorry uh from you know that stephen chow made famous uh, and i don't know if she's appeared in any i don't think she appears in either of those iterations I don't think she appears in the iteration where, from the TVB drama where Tony Leung plays uh, Wai Subo um, and Andy Lau is the emperor. I could be wrong because um, I haven't seen those all the way through. Um, but uh, yeah, to my knowledge, I think she's she's in the literature but hasn't made her way over to um, the, 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 the small screen in those variations yet. Yeah, and as you hinted in, uh, hinted at uh, in the deer and the cauldron, she uh, her continue her story gets continued as she's now a nun that becomes a martial art teacher to that protagonist that you just mentioned, why why Chabo So uh, they found different angles to uh, continue a highly dramatic uh, story, and therefore taking their own uh, paths into it and out of it, and. Uh, when we now get to this discussion of the film where 
you know, I'm, um, I, I don't have as many notes as I usually do because uh, this was uh, a very new thing to me. But uh, if we just ask this question off the bat, so so that I know I understood it correctly, in general, does it seem like John Woo took um, some uh, new paths with his story? But because, for instance, no one loses an arm in this one. So did it seem to you that he was taking a completely different route versus uh, the stage play? I don't think uh, in the 57 version she loses an arm and in the 59 film version uh, I don't think she loses an arm either. They pretty much stick to this idea of transforming um, these characters, these two characters into sort of just tragic lovers, uh, very much a Romeo and Juliet, um, albeit very different circumstances, you know, but that kind of tragic tale and sort of overly romanticizing it based on compare when you compare it with what history says you know happened you know she doesn't lose an arm uh she doesn't get remarried in in the stage play she doesn't die due um to pregnancy or or an illness as a result um there are you know a lot of liberties taken but but is it therefore very much tailored after the uh the original text you think if you were to make a determination i think if you look at the if, if you look at the film version they did in 59 it's it's pretty much in line with the events of john woo's version and my understanding is that the 59 film version is based on the same script as the 57 stage version that made um the two character the two actors so famous um for these roles and then made them sort of this uh this romanticized pair that would go on to do you know so many other roles together over the years before i forget it because we were here on the verge of discussing the film obviously john woo is credited with the script so so i'm sure some of the dialogue is his but you know in reality can he deviate that much i mean he can't rewrite the songs right uh, i mean there, there 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 must be some sort of adherence to to the original play and you you can't just go in here and make new uh, new songs or what have you or, or, or what do you know about like how how sacred these things are honestly i'm not an expert on the lyrics and i don't know enough to say where and what lyrics if any have been changed um if the if the song remains the same <laughs> or not you you have different a different pair of actors um in the lead roles in both films giving distinctly different performances even though they're playing the same characters and they're approach and their style is is different as well i don't think that john woo based on what i know about his background he was not you know versed in songwriting or even in cantonese opera all that much i think he brought the cinematic experience with him and and applied that so my assumption is that they were still very much remaining in the wheelhouse of the stage production company that was brought in for this production as well. Um, so I'm assuming that that expertise came with, with that company. And he obviously has a, a composer here, a musical director and all of that. Uh, Joseph Koo is on this film. So there are certainly people uh, that are uh, specifically tied to uh, 
uh, different aspects of this of this film to get it uh, to get it right. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, it's uh, also an interesting thought, uh, whether or not you you're you're allowed to deviate from uh, the flower princess or not. I mean, uh, what we didn't mention is that. Uh, you know, uh, there, there's we, we didn't summarize the flower princess as such, but in the real story, there it wasn't that much in the summary that uh, she meets this uh, literary scholar, and that's the romantic pairing, the doomed romantic pairing that the movie has as its driving force. I think again, if we throw back the the idea of looking at European opera performances and and how strictly say a movie like uh, Les Mis is going to stick to the script and the songs and the music compared to the original stage opera. Or if you take the original script of Shakespeare and then you have somebody like a Kenneth Branagh come along and, and turn that into, you know, a, a film version. And I'm, I'm especially thinking of like his earlier uh, stuff like Much Ado About Nothing and and things where he's really applying a very strong cinematic hand uh, in terms of the narrative and the storytelling uh, to what essentially was a, a stage comedy, right? There, there are probably levels that every director is going to take and can be allowed to, with some flexibility, make changes to. Um, but then you're going to have criticisms, you know, on how, for some people, you know, they, they want to stick exactly with the original script or exactly with, you know, the original style of, of, a, of an opera, you know, the, the, the music that is used and the lyrics that are used with, with no changes. Um, again, I can't comment on, on, on that because my level of, of knowledge of the language um, is, is very, very limited as kind of this nerdy outsider. It's certainly not this fresh uh, 1976 uh vintage update or anything it's traditional obviously so uh, they're not um, trying to reinvent it um, into something completely different that's very evident though uh, with an expanded scope i suppose uh, but um, uh, we'll get to that so my critics cap is i i don't know if it's on or off here but the analysis uh, will be a bit more difficult this time as this form of uh, storytelling and filmmaking isn't something I'm skilled at dissecting. I'm a newbie, but I'm also into, as I've said, tracking a filmmaker's progress, progress, learning of the genres a filmmaker navigated, what kind of expressions uh, he or she did doing so. So, and and as always, one can only be honest about uh, an opinion, uh, whether you're new or experienced with the genre. So, in terms of Princess Xiangping, John Woo's film here, it's a it's a lavish, often beautiful looking film where you you certainly get into the story and the flow via the uh, dialogue performance and the singing performance and the performing style that comes with it. Cantonese opera is, I suppose, either for you or not for you, but but I found myself uh, getting into it, and it's even very fetching because of the technical qualities combined with the performance and the singing style as i said you know even if we disconnect the fact that we're we're covering uh, the early days of a filmmaker no, the maybe not the most usual film to cover when you're covering the early days of a filmmaker it's still quite fetching um, even if i'm not very used to this type of filmmaking and uh, this type of performance uh, art but uh, all in all, I liked it. So it's not like I thought I was on the outside looking in and not understanding anything. I, I certainly got into this uh, story of uh, tragedy and doomed lovers and all, and all of that. 
but you're, you're a bit used to uh, the film and have seen perhaps a, a few more Cantonese opera films. So uh, uh, how did it play for you at this time, John Woo's Princess Shangqing? Yeah, this, I mean, this is a favorite of mine. Um, it just gets better every time I watch it because I am able to glean, you know, more and more details from it with each each watch. And I think for somebody coming in from the outside who's not experienced Cantonese opera before, but is a fan of, say, Hong Kong cinema, you know, the more the more action oriented films, there's a couple of things you have to understand that. First of all, the history of Hong Kong cinema is very tightly wound with opera and stage performance. Uh, some of the first, very first Chinese filmmakers were basically just taking excerpts of uh, popular uh, opera performances and and shooting them on film initially. And uh, I think one of the earliest films out of uh, Hong Kong, uh, for, sorry, one of the first Cantonese dialect films actually, is a film called White Gold Dragon, and this was a film starring a famous Cantonese opera performer. So there was a lot of back and forth between people who were stage-trained Cantonese opera performers making their way over to, you know, appear on the screen, and and you know, in some in some ways, vice versa. You had this kind of training. People who've seen, for example, um, uh, what's the same? What's what's Samo's biography biography movie? The name escapes me. Uh, painted faces. Okay, um, know that you know even for the um, action or the, what they call the martial opera roles, um, you've got the seven little fortunes coming out of this this kind of history where they were being trained for stage and they made their way you know over to screen, and you've got the, this back and forth that continues to influence films going forward um, between stage and screen. Cantonese opera has kind of fallen out of favor. It's a sort of a, a subgenre of entertainment now that typically appeals to the older generations and not so much to the younger generations. And this film was an attempt to try and bring about a bit of a revival by, you know, getting a young director and applying more modern cinema techniques to it, right? You had this tradition of these sort of Cantonese opera films back in the 30s, and they kind of reached a peak um, almost by around, say, 1940. And then they started to, you know, split and kind of filter off, and you'd get different genres coming up. Many people, if you follow Shaw Cinema, you know that there's kind of this dual history between Mandarin language productions, which were made by the Shanghai filmmakers, and then these lower budget, I don't want to say cheaper, but they were definitely lower budget productions, um, often in black and white, made by the local Hong Kong filmmakers in Cantonese. And you had this kind of split until the 1970s when things started taking a turn for different reasons that we won't get into. And so, yeah, you have this history of opera being sort of at the heart of the earliest parts of Hong Kong cinema. Um, This was a chance for them to kind of go back and revive that. There's another film, and I... I'm not sure if we talked about it or we might have talked about it on offline. And that is uh, Chang Che's Fantastic Magic Baby. Yeah, we, we haven't done it on the show, but uh, we, we talked of it when I did my, when I reached uh, that part of Chang Che's filmography in 1975. Um, and uh, I didn't know that it was a, a film that's split into two distinct uh, halves. It's it's very much like this in that it's trying to um, take sort of the, the the operatic stage approach 
and bring it to screen and kind of attempt to revitalize it for a younger generation. And it's a very interesting film um, to to watch also to get some more background on 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 all of this together it, it's a mix of uh, that story and uh, a mini documentary showing actual opera performances uh, before uh, yeah uh, opera performances uh, which i didn't expect that the movie like uh, it's over now by the hour bye bye it is a spin show production but wait we got a little bonus feature for you you know yeah so it was curious in that regard and that you, know, you you talked about the timing you know, so for example, there is an album version out there um, at four hours. The, some of these productions, when they're done on the stage, they were very lengthy productions. I wouldn't say there's, I mean, if you were to watch one today in, in sort of a modern high-end theater, there would likely be an intermission. But when they were done sort of out on the street where they would sort of just build the stage in a park and set up chairs and people would go and sit and watch very noisy affairs um people would often be talking and and eating and kids running around and you would think that people were not paying attention (laughs) to what's going on and the thing is is that they know the show so well that there are favorite moments that when those moments come on is that's when people would turn and and watch and you know like a, a famous actor comes out and that's when they really get engaged and then that scene passes and they go back to doing whatever and they wait for the next sort of big scene uh, to come up. But these were, you know, the, the, when they were traveling shows like this, they were sort of these big uh, all afternoon affairs. Um, and sometimes they do a full show. Sometimes they just do scenes from different shows. Um, and so it could be, you know, a, a mixed bag. And the other interesting thing that happens at this time is, as we talked about the film preceding this from um, 1959, those were the most famous performers, um, Yam Kin Fai and Pak Su Chin, who became known as Yam Pak. Okay, uh, their their names would be spoken together whenever they were in a production, um, not just of Princess Champagne, but you know any of the other productions. It became a sort of selling point. It was kind of like the earliest version of Benefer, oh. right? So, like the <laughs> you, Benefer, you, went, you like, went there. <laughs> I did, I did. That. But, but I mean, this this was what was you got you got to make the kids understand. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> Benefer. Um, you know, so um, together they did like you know tons and tons of films between you know the the fifties and sixties, and and they were sort of the hit crew. Then we get to this film, and they bring in their uh, un, sort of their uh, not their understudies their um their the, the next generation who studied under them uh for these roles and i think that um because of the way that film treats them you know it 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 also sort of highlights their abilities in a very different way um so i think that that that's another interesting aspect of that here but this is a thing that Again, even though it has its origins, it still has very far-reaching tendrils to modern Hong Kong cinema. Um, you can look to sort of films like 1996's Hudo Men or um, 2002's Demi Haunted. Right? They're all kind of going back and touching on uh, aspects of this. Um, Anita Moy and Leslie Chung's film, Rouge. Uh, the Farewell, uh, Farewell My Concubine, right, with uh, Leslie Chung. They all have. They all talk about the the the, the elements of um, you know stage and actors and the impacts to culture, um, and even even in silly comedies like I'm um, thinking 1991's The Banquet. Right, there's a scene with uh, uh, Eric Zhang and I think it's Karina Lau where they're in a restaurant and they're 
performing the song from this, the um, that you know you would come to recognize that particular tune um, because it's just so ubiquitous. From Chengping. From from Chengping, yeah. And but they're singing it with kind of very Molyu silly lyrics in, in their place, right? They're not singing the actual actual song. It's and so this kind of stuff, you know, it 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 just kind of weaves its way back in through different films and the culture over the years. I, I wanted to just speak a little bit about my 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 experience with you know I'm certainly not clever enough to appreciate the songs, remember the songs, appreciate the type of performing, whether it's good or bad. I'm a little bit out of the loop culturally, which is okay. I mean, I, I, but I have enjoyed dipping into some of the reference works on film. Like the, the first two uh, operas I saw were the Shaw Brothers classics, really. Uh, Li Han Shang's uh, The Kingdom and the Beauty and Love Attorney, which uh, I think they're probably a a good sort of in to this genre where to, to sort of appreciate whether it's for you or not. Maybe I'm forgetting other reference works, but the Love Attorney certainly was an easy in because I knew the story. I, I had seen Choi Hawks the Lovers. Um, I suppose the story is called The Butterfly Lovers originally. So I, I knew what the sort of end game was of that one and even if you're not used to how the story is delivered you know the, the good films the good stories they, they get you through execution whether you have an ear for it or not whether you have an ear for the melody of the story and the narrative that is utilized in princess Ping, which I've, i sort of ended up uh, feeling that it was rather fetching but i will never understand the full extent of whether they're doing an excellent job or if they're missing a beat or not. You know what I mean? It just felt like a very professional and well done and executed uh, production, but I, I can't really dissect it more more than that. But uh, it's, it's, a, it's a sincere approach, is my point. And uh, it's interesting that uh, I suppose those two, but maybe more out of the cost, they're credited up front as Young Phoenix Opera, meaning that uh, the film credits the troupe that is going to perform this film as John Woo sweeps through this multi-layered set so he, he's, uh, he's obviously going to establish that uh, we we have built something that the camera can sweep through with layers we're not gonna be a static widescreen frame or anything which is uh, a nice cinematic tool to open it up uh, that way which is perhaps uh, you know the modern tool here back in 1959 uh, I'm not sure they even shot that probably not in widescreen so they had a static uh, frame, but here John is uh, suitably, not showing off, but suitably uh, sh- showing that there is a technical quality here. But he's obviously not uh, leaping through scene for, to scene, s- setting 20 different settings, exterior, interior. Like it's, it's still a very confined um, story that he's focusing on. Um, like it's not abandoning at all that it's a Cantonese opera. So there's a... There's obviously tons of the expected traditional percussion rhythm of the stage show being here. There's not a whole lot of spoken dialogue either. And here's where I'm totally ignorant if Cantonese opera can be one way, another way, depending on the type of uh, stage play you're putting on. But but they certainly rarely speak here. And I'm going to try to explain this. I'm totally ignorant and a newbie. But when they're not singing, sometime when there's dialogue they're delivering they're, they're delivering the speech in a rhythm that i suppose is is what you expect out of a cantonese uh, opera where 
I'm going to try and approximate it here. Where they speak like this. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's uh, the, the, like the opening scenes with the emperor as he uh, as he speaks. Like uh, when they're not in a singing number, that's the style of delivery. It seems like they're very much adhering to a tradition how, how audiences expect an opera to feel and sound. And that includes uh, that type of uh, vocal performance at times it seems like they have regular regular dialogue but i don't know if there's any proper rules to how you perform or not or if you just decide during your adaptation that uh, we're going to perform singing and dialogue like this and at times we're just going to speak a proper dialogue if you will so it's a curious uh, thing too about uh, the, the vocal and singing track this movie isn't in sync sound but they have recorded the vocal and singing track in a non-studio setting to, I don't know, uh, to give the appearance of a, of stage acoustics. You know what I mean? Because it's a very uh, echoey vocal track. Do, do, do I have any thoughts on that? Because it's not a, uh, like a crisp studio recording that we're listening to. It's a little bit jarring at times, especially if you go back and watch the the 59 version, where it seems like they were kind of just recording a lot of it. Right there on set. Yeah, it was live, like like it sounds like a live sound recording. Yeah, but it, uh, but uh, in a stage setting, but not live sound from this film. It it, it is a post um, synchronized film. Yeah, it would be interesting to to see how audiences reacted to that um, back then, because that's that's definitely not how they're used to hearing um, the performers in, when they go to a performance. These uh, actresses need to be expressive during singing as well. Uh, as they fall in love, they need to react in a warm way. Princess Changping needs to react in a warm way to the scholar and uh, the ins into the story that way. So I thought that was... Uh, they, they were. It seemed like they were very much on point. They were reacting properly. They were reacting suitably so that the audience will understand that uh, we're transitioning into uh, infatuation and so forth. So... I suppose the, uh, that's a spontaneous question. How do you think the actresses uh, do here as the very key roles need to work? I think I think they do an excellent job. In fact, I I kind of prefer, prefer the performance of this pairing uh, than the Yumpak pairing. I know that's probably sacrilege to some people, um, but I really like the chemistry that the two have here in this. And perhaps that's in part because of um, the the cinema technique. When you're watching a pair of actors or actresses on stage, your relationship to them is based on where you're sitting, right? And they have to be uh, overly expressive um, to be able to convey that relationship to the person who's the furthest away from them, wherever they're at in an audience. And with film, you can't do that. You have to be expressive to the camera. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a very different technique um, in many ways. Um, and I think that the, you know, I'm a, I'm a lover of film. I like stage stuff too, but because you can get close-ups and you can get uh, reverse shots and reaction shots, and I really enjoy the performance that the the two actresses bring to these characters in this film. Yeah, I thought uh, she was very good. As uh, as Chao uh, Chao Saihin, the literary scholar, not that it's any doubt in our minds that uh, you know that, that's a male actor, and we all know it was an actress. There's a good they, 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 they sell the distinction 
in performance and uh, makeup design and uh, and uh, costume design and uh, they're both very expressive certainly Mui I should say is uh, is up for this uh, to pour her heart out like she does throughout the film she cries quite a bit uh, and it's uh, it's noticeable but not overdone and cloying or anything like that um, so yeah, I think they indeed they do work um, very well together like, like it's, a, it's a it's a fast transition granted it, this movie doesn't run four hours so the, the romance happens uh, quite quick but uh, they are very fetching together and uh, this uh, they they have so much screen time together and that certainly needs certainly needs to work we, we mentioned that uh, it's cinematic and one thing that i don't think works is that they um, let us take a gander outside the emperor's palace walls to to actually see the rebel uprising and i don't know about you these shots looks when we see uh, the, you know uh, all the fighting and uh, the spears and there's uh, fire and all that they looked so much more crisp these shots like they're from a second unit that didn't quite gel with the technical quality of the interior stuff i know why they're doing it to impress you a little bit that um, they can show the rebel uprising as well but uh, I, I thought they were rather jarring these um, these uh, shots of uh, of uh, of violence and uh, fire stunts and what have you yeah i agree it's uh, and, and i i wouldn't use the word crisp i think they look bad <laughs> <laughs> they did they, they just don't match the color yeah. the tone the aesthetic that's established when we're with the characters and then suddenly they cut to these random bits of cannon fire and and soldiers rushing to various places there there's definitely no narrative through point in terms of location setting and i mean maybe they shot this second unit stuff for this film but it could very easily be that they just pulled it out of some you know random shaw footage used for something else and dropped it in yeah the cinematography looked so much different uh, to it's be honest. very different yeah uh, they certainly do some more challenging technical stuff on stage, some fire stunts and what have you, which looks uh, uh, pretty good as as the violence approaches uh, the big uh, the big hall where we've uh, spent our, the majority of our time during the first and second reel, I suppose. Uh, it almost seems to like the story's reaching its tragic peak early with the forces closing in. We're possibly going to lose uh, the character of uh, Princess Shang Ping. She's ordered to die, and the lover saying tearful goodbyes. Uh, but um, it's, it's certainly during its 100-minute running time does uh, sustain uh, momentum and pace. It's not uh, padding or anything. Uh, we, we certainly uh, can follow and appreciate the different uh, beats of uh, the story and the change of setting that we'll speak of in a little bit. Uh, so, so it's it, it's interesting to follow. And again, you get into the groove of. Uh, how this movie is told through uh, singing and the performance style. It's, it's actually not something you think about as a newbie to these things uh, after a while, to be honest. Um, so uh, it's very much uh, engaging. And uh, then I, I, I suppose the greatest cinematic trick that he does here, you know, not greatest cinematic trick, but uh, it, it's impressive for the film and it's immersive for the film is when, when John changes seasons and we get the middle section of the film. That takes place uh, in an outside monastery where Changping is now residing, and uh, John is not shy about um, about stage snow. 
is that a good thing for the film that it uh, changes uh, setting and uh, is cinematic in this regard? Yeah, I mean, I I think that um, there's a there's a definitely a timeliness to it. Again, if you were if you were typically doing this as the the full production, I guess the running time is is up to four hours long. So, you know, as the director, he had to trim uh, quite a bit. And and there may be points where it feels like that there are shots back to back, and you might get a bit confused as to wait a minute, what's what, you know what's happened, and there's been significant time passing. And I, I'm not sure that's always conveyed as as well as it could be. There are little bits in in the dialogue that hint to things. But we certainly get there as the second encounter in in the snow where she pretends to not Nova Scholar, we, we certainly get there through the songs and the dialogue where uh, where she's gone and where she's do, what she's right. doing now. So, yeah. And, and, and that's a significant period of time because what has happened is from the time the palace is invaded, they're, they're being invaded by uh, rebels and, and a rebel leader. Then he takes over, she ends up getting wounded and and ends up being rescued and taken away from the palace. And then a lot of time passes because basically the rebels take over and then they're defeated in another overthrow by the Qing, the, the, the Manchurians, the Qing dynasty. And they come in and take over. So all that has happened in, in, in this time span that we get as basically kind of like a fade to the next scene. But yeah, he does kind of show this through you know, the idea of seasons and, and progression. And I, I think it works very well. But um, again, some people may, be, may not be clear on exactly how much time has passed. There's two things there. Uh, as I said, I think uh, we catch up quite quickly because it's also a very long meeting between the two, a very long back and forth, even a debate of sorts. But it's also surrounded by this uh, wonderful looking set that acts as uh, exterior where the snow is falling uh, constantly, the fake uh, stage snow. And it really looks quite elegant. Granted, uh, not a lot of that snow falls on the actresses. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not uh, caked in that snow. But it's quite uh, alluring, uh, I'd say, uh, the way John navigates that uh, setting and how he uh, sh- shows off that set through cinematography. And then uh, there, there is that it, it's quite an extended scene, which might be a problem for some, but, but you know, it's still, it's still uh, an interesting and uh, immersive story as the two go back and forth in dialogue and songs. And she eventually, if I understood things correctly, does admit that I am the princess, you know, because she tries to conceal her identity. And that leads into, obviously, the f- finale and tragic ending and all of that, but... Uh, I guess that's one of the uh, sections, uh, this middle section is one of the sections I guess John could allow to be uh, long and extended. But maybe it's, as a matter of fact, we're talking a four-hour stage performance, maybe this is shortened greatly as well. I don't know. Maybe there's more scenes inside the monastery, maybe more characters, I don't know. But uh, it's it's certainly that that, that change from the hall to this this snowy landscape. Just quite marvelous to look at, to be honest. Um, uh, so, so I think in terms of a, a cinema experience, quite uh, alluring to uh, uh, to look at, to be honest. And uh, it allows for focus on the actresses 
too, because it's such an extended back and forth between them. I think a, a, a third character enters eventually, but it, it's 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 such an extended piece that um, surely it must show them off at uh, their best as well. Uh, this uh, to to have this frame alone to themselves and a young director steering this and just uh, let the performers uh, performance and the performances. Uh, aid the technical quality with the snow and all of that so uh, i thought uh, i noticed it was extended but not overly so it just went by pretty fast just to see them go back and forth you know yeah i would agree i think that it's it's definitely one of the strongest moments is when it's the two of them uh you know kind of uh, sparring they're they're doing this verbal sparring back and forth both upon the time that when they initially meet and they're kind of kind of you know, he's proposing marriage and she's kind of sizing him up. And then later when she's trying to um, keep her identity hidden and he's pretty sure it's her, but he's trying to get her to admit it. Um, and there, there's this banter that goes back and forth. And it's really great between the two of them that they have this, you know, the, this nice set and the, 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 the shot composition uh, works very well on them. And and really, I don't have that much else to say. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I confess to being a newbie, and I could just sort of make observations at the best of my ability. You know, the combination the combination of uh, of experiencing something new and experiencing something out of John's filmography that I hadn't is, is certainly enough to make this uh, an interesting uh, watch. But it is uh, an, an immersive watch, uh, and it's easy to uh, get into uh, as well, even if it. Uh, isn't uh, something you've done uh, before, even if you don't know anything about Cantonese opera. Uh, so I don't have anything else to say. Other than the, the one thing I was confused about, because if Hong Kong Movie Database is to be believed, we start with, uh, obviously, a key role of uh, the emperor, her father, and then the same actor turns up in a different role. But he, but but he looks exactly the same essentially. So, <laughs> I, so I was kind the... of confused that oh, oh he did survive, but he's now uh, uh, an authority figure to uh, to to not to be revered but feared instead. I guess the it's kind of a, that's a more traditional carryover aspect um, from stage performances because you would have uh, characters who are versed in certain types of roles. And they would, you know, um, stick to those kind of roles. So, yeah, the actor you have here, he starts out playing the last Ming emperor. Um, that that is, that is her father. And then later, when they end up going back to the palace, this is years and years later, with the first Qing emperor now on the throne, it's the same actor. <laughs> and he's kind of got the same beard and everything. His, his emperor uniform is a little different. But you're like, what? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's because you would often have, you know, actors switch out of roles. And typically a role, especially in the, in the martial stage dramas, the role is determined by the costume and their facial makeup, right? That, that signifies who is playing the role a bit more so than, you know, having a different actor. So you'd very often have the same actors coming in and doing different roles throughout the course of a drama, except with the exception of the really big leads, right? The leads would not switch roles, but the, you know, those playing supporting roles would uh, switch it up. And I, I'm, I'm guessing that because it's the troupe that are doing a lot of the background work here um, for the supporting roles, 
um, there's that aspect. And also because it's kind of, even though it's a movie, they're, they're still kind of paying some homage back to the theatrical traditions. Yeah, it took me quite a bit to understand that he isn't. <laughs> he isn't the same character. So it, was, it was the scene, the, the set piece, where just I, I kind of needed to do some mental gymnastics before I understood where we were. But uh, there's certainly no understanding of where we... Uh, misunderstanding of where we uh, ended at, which uh, seems uh, it, this uh, tragedy wasn't uh, that... I'm familiar with those beats from the various operas I've seen before. I mean, we would argue that this is a a good in to watch uh, the the art uh, the art of Cantonese opera film. But would you rather point people to the Shaw Brothers films like The Kingdom and the Beauty and uh, Love Attorney in, in your estimation? Oh, well, I mean, they're all pretty great um, for me. Um, I think if you, I, I think that you know, like The Kingdom and the Beauty is a good in. If you want to go and then watch uh, Chinese Odyssey 2002, you know, with um, Tony Leung Chui and um, is it Vicky Zhao Zhaowei who's in that, or Fei Wong? Well, well, both, well, both are. <laughs> yeah, and and so that is really playing to sort of the musical tradition of um, King and the Beauty, which is Huang Mei opera, which is a slightly different style of opera from from this one. Again, this is um, something that's got its, you know, roots more in the history of Hong Kong cinema, and also it because it's just it, it it's like the most popular one I think in in terms of just pop culture penetration. You'll hear that theme song pop up in some in so many places. Yeah, and, and you know, you know, and that's the only thing I can never recognize, of course, because the, when they say like, "Oh, the songs from Love Eternity and Kingdom, Kingdom and the Beauty," it it's uh, I, I I can't uh, necessarily differentiate. And when it pops out in a modern setting or anything, boom! I think I've seen that. Like, I, I don't have the ear, ear for that, not yet, anyway. They're all great in- entries. This is a a particularly great one because it's again, you've got John Woo helming it, so you've got some of his aesthetic style just forget about the second unit stuff it's only there for like not even a minute it's just you know a a few external shots and i think most people agree that it doesn't work really well but it doesn't detract anything from it and the performance here is here are great and the thing about it is once you get through this you know even if you want to sort of you know i'm not recommending this but if you want to kind of like you know put it on two times you know double speed or speed and a half through the songs or something you get the notion of what's being said and the notion of the storyline it's a pretty simple story and once you know that you can go and you can watch like the 59 version even without subtitles and know what's going on basically you know and 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 see you know how they're doing it and how they're staging it and and once it's like Romeo and Juliet once you know the beats of the story you know it and any version that comes along later and is redoing it or riffing on it you could watch it in any language and still get the gist of what's going on with it. And, f- and thank God that um, the subtitle track that was created for this eventually, maybe it was uh, subtitled originally, but we never saw it in English uh, until the DVD. And now on digital, it it sure looks like they, um, they did a good job. It's not uh, clunky English for these songs and this uh, dialogue because you're, for for someone who wants to focus on understanding this, 
you'd want uh, some good grammar to go along with it. And it seems like they did do a good job um, of that as they um, put it together for in, in uh, remastered form. So there's no uh, Hong Kong subtitles style gaffes necessarily here, which is good. I'll, I'll conclude my notes uh, right there. I obviously would recommend it if you're interested in what uh, John Woo uh, did here in the 70s uh, and uh, if uh, you want to experience this, experience something new and uh, something you've been curious about, then, then do, then do uh, uh, give it a whirl. So it, it won't be for everyone. But um, So I'll, I'll leave it to you to share any other notes if you have them. No, again, uh, if you've stuck with us this long, I do apologize for my nerding out and <laughs> overt rambling over this. This is the arena for it, Paul, to, to nerd out. Yeah, this, is, <laughs> this is a... You know, it's something that's been a favorite of mine for a while. Again, I like I, I I like the martial arts stuff. I love the musical stuff. As I've often talked with with Ken offline, you know, I'm like, they're coming out with all these uh, mega box Shaw Brothers Blu-ray retrospectives, which I think are great. But it's like it's the same stuff. You know, it's like give me give me the musicals now. <laughs> give me give me the stuff that they haven't released. And look, I get it. I know that those are not the money makers. I know that the money makers are the is the same old you know martial arts Shaw titles that we've seen for years. I get that. I'm just you know being a little whiny guy in the corner, so don't pay any attention to me. I jokingly tweeted, but obviously in text, um, such nuances can't uh, be appreciated, especially because I'm not a humorous person. Uh, but I jokingly tweeted at Arrow, like, uh, "Come on, Volume Three, Huang Mei Opera." Not this time around, anyway. Maybe volume, blah blah blah. And then I saw on a, on another forum that uh, uh, that uh, Kenny P had so good reviews, I was very disappointed. <laughs> and I, no, how was it? I mean, I understand it too. That you're not gonna put Lovitani and Heroes of the East and King Boxer and and uh, then Kingdom and the Beauty as well in the same box set. They're going where the the sort of uh, uh, the, the appeal in the mainstream audience is it. Is and uh, the oddities in those sets are the um, are the kooky uh, horror and uh, kaiju films and what have you that uh, Shaw Brothers did, but no dips into Huang Mai Opera as of yet. So, or or even just like the the pop culture operas, you know, like Hong Kong Nocturne and 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 stuff like that. I, w- I would love to see that because uh, those are you know I I I, I have seen that, but uh, you know. Groovy, groovy, colorful musicals, man. Like uh, and uh, and pretty girls, and they all have their clothes on. So it's all it's, it's for the family. <laughs> uh, but but yeah, I agree. That would be lovely because it's part of the Shaw Brothers legacy. But you gotta have an audience uh, for that. You can't put out a one hundred pound box set with uh, the majority of them being musicals, whether that type of musical or a Huang Mei opera, and get people to like who are into the Venoms to sort of boom pre order. But it would be lovely. It would be uh, would be absolutely lovely. But for now, I have uh, I have what I have on DVD, and uh, maybe one can look up some more stuff. I know, I know like Chang Che either made or wrote an opera too, which wouldn't be uh, out of uh, line because he's written lyrics for his films uh, as well. In Hong Kong, they knew there was a legacy there, and therefore customer buying urges there because they did put out the operas and they even put out Love Eternity in a special edition set. And they wouldn't have done that locally, uh, otherwise. Oh, oh, by the way, you're right. Love Eternity, they did upgrade that to Blu-ray, now that I think of it. Yeah. And um, also, I think uh, Kingdom of Beauty and The Three Smiles are also Blu-ray available, as well as this film. 
there's a dangerous proposition of will we will we break even but in hong kong the the uh, the, the buying power surely is larger than in the us and the uk and that's just the way it is and that's fine but the way you can get princess Xiangping, it's a little bit more globally available a little bit that way uh, so it has been rather prominently featured on home video formats available on dvd and blu-ray in hong kong uh, the first DVD, uh, the older Universe DVD, did not have subtitles. So it was nice to see when it was restored as part of the Fortune Star releases that it did get English subtitles. But it is also available in HD on at least the US iTunes store. In case you want to go digital and it is English subtitled as well. And at the time of recording, it was priced at either $6.99 US dollars or $7.99 US dollars. So it's a good price and a good way to get it. Uh, but uh, But yeah. So that's us done for this. A little John Woo, uh, John Woo nerd out, and uh, we'll certainly uh, maybe we'll do some comedies or all of his comedies. Where, you know, there's no. I, I bet you a buck right now. There's no podcast out there that have spent an hour on laughing times, starring Dean Sheck <laughs> as Charlie Chaplin. So maybe <laughs> maybe we should at one point. <laughs> does, does anybody want to spend an hour on Dean Sheck at anything? I've seen the film and I don't remember wanting to kill myself. So maybe it was okay, but uh, that's a little bit of an oddity in uh, John's uh, filmography, you know, from the director of Hardboiled, Loving Times. Dean Check. I'm all about the comedies. Yeah, sure. Uh, there, there is uh, substance and context within his comedies uh, and performers to speak of that made a cultural impact uh, whether in the film or in previous incarnations like Plain Jane to the Rescue is features a character that uh, I think has uh, endured to a degree so there's obviously things to talk of before he became the action director that we know and love uh, but uh, at any rate uh, we are going to uh, sign off so uh, for all your podcast on fire network needs including the back catalog of podcast on fire and our various other shows podcastonfire.com is the place to go where uh, we're available on social media and you can get the podcast on uh, apple podcasts spotify stitcher or wherever you get podcasts so uh, why don't you throw out the plug for uh, for your web uh, for your website and uh, your podcast yeah it is east screen west screen and you can find us at concast.com excellent check out their uh, year-end episodes and uh, their chinese new year episode uh, that's uh, in the recent uh, uh, in the recent queue there over at uh, Comcast. So that's been uh, this John Woo special. So thank you very much. And uh, I've been kind of being with me was uh, Paul Fox of the East Screen West Screen podcast. So say goodbye. And and, and as, as I always say, uh, sing a little tune. So sing a tune from Princess uh, Changping in uh, Cantonese opera style. No. No, it's not, <laughs> not, not happening in this lifetime. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, bye bye. <laughs>